Amen. Thank you, Lord. Well, we're going to continue. We're almost wrapped up with Hebrews. We've got a little bit further to go. We're going to look at Hebrews chapter 12 today, but not the entire chapter. We'll, we'll continue with that a little bit later. Um, but we're coming off from chapter 11, and I just want to refresh your memory what we heard about in chapter 11. Right before Thanksgiving, we talked about the pilgrims, but it was the Hall of Fame faith people that were the pilgrims. They were seeking a country that was a better country from the one they came out of. And so we looked at the examples, Abraham, Moses, Noah, Noah, Enoch, all of those that are listed in chapter 11. And in the list in chapter 11, we see that faith really shakes things up in the world. Faith shakes things up in your life. It moves mountains. It moves barriers and obstacles. And at the same time, it shakes the world in that the world reacts. And so a lot of these uh, Hall of Fame faith people encountered opposition from the world. And so faith rocks the world in many respects. And opposition does come when you are trying to live for Christ because the world is counter living for they're not They're not for living for Christ. They, they live on a different, a different trajectory. And so what happens when opposition comes for you? Has it come for you? Well, maybe you haven't uh, experienced extreme persecution from people yet, but Paul said that anyone who lives godly in Christ Jesus will have persecution in this life. Maybe it's not from people yet, but that could be coming. Maybe it's from spiritual opposition. You just have a hard time getting through the day. There are so many things happening. Your mind is getting bogged down with thoughts that aren't edifying or you're, you're having a struggle getting past certain issues and things in the world and the, and the spiritual opposition is just heaping on condemnation or accusation or depression, anxiety, things like that. What do you do when things come against you? Is something coming against you, or is it our own uh, walking in the things of the world, or is it the Lord bringing these things on you? We're going to look at that today. The Lord doesn't bring bad things upon his people. I've said that over and over again, but we're going to talk about discipline. There is a disciplining process that we're going to look at in a little bit. But I want you to know that the Lord is for you and not against you, and that you are on a race. That's what chapter 12 is going to be talking about, that we are looking unto Jesus, that we can endure the race, and you can run the race in such a way to win. Paul said, I'm running in such a way to win the prize. How many of you are running to win the prize? Anybody? Good, a few. Because a lot of people in church are just running. They're not running for, they don't think they can get the prize. I don't deserve the prize. I can't obtain to the prize. Of course, none of us deserve it or can't obtain to it. But the Lord promises it to those who will seek it and go for it. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So you're in the race. Hopefully you're in the race. You're in the race of grace and you're seeking his face. This is what faith does. You're in the race. But you will win the race by one simple key, staying in it. All you have to do is stay in it, and you're guaranteed winning. But you can stay in it and drag and be heavy, and you'll make it, but it's going to be full of uh, stress and difficulties. 
setbacks, or you can stay in the race and endure with power from on high and have a more joyful step, a more prosperous step as you're moving towards the finish line. And that's what chapter 12 is going to try to encourage us with. So we begin coming off the heels of chapter 11 with verse 1. Therefore, what's it there for? It's therefore because we just talked about all the great heroes of faith in chapter 11. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Therefore, we also... Let's just look at those words, we also, for a second. Do you realize what this connects us to? It connects us to what we just heard, all these great heroes of faith that we just looked at. We also can be connected to them. We are connected to them. We also can move mountains just as they moved mountains. We also can persevere just as they persevered. We also can obtain a good report just as they obtained a great report by faith. And we also can expect the same goodness of God to manifest in our lives because we also are flawed human beings just like they were flawed. Aren't you glad that the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 were flawed human beings? There's not one perfect human being in all scripture except for the Lord Jesus. And yet God did incredible things with flawed people. We also can expect that God can do incredible things through us being flawed people because we also are like them and we also have the same God. Hallelujah. It's not up to me. It's up to him. All I got to do is be in the race. And so this is the encouragement. We also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, what does that mean? These cloud of witnesses, they were people who weren't perfect, but they persevered. And uh, what this is talking about is the witnesses that he just went through in Hebrews chapter 11. Look at all your, your heritage. Look at your ancestors, who you're connected to, who, who you're coming forth from. You are the next in line. They, they went before us. Now we take the baton. In fact, the metaphor is that we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. It's kind of a metaphor uh, being in an arena. We're in an arena, and so it's going to go on like we're in a race, and we have the, these cloud of witnesses cheering us on. It doesn't mean that they're witnessing everything we do. The wit word witness there means it's a witness, a testimony. Their testimonies that we just read in chapter 11, their testimonies cheer us on. They cheer us on as we go. And the word witness, even uh, Jesus said, you shall be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Witnesses means that you're witnessing, you're testifying, you're having a testimony of Christ in your life. It's not like you're witnessing something. So I don't know whether all those heroes of the Hall of Fame faith chapter, if they're, they're looking at us or if people have gone before us can look at us. Maybe they can, maybe they can't. I would think they're busy looking at Jesus. But the meaning is not that they're just looking and watching everything we're doing. The meaning is that they have a testimony. We, we consider their testimonies, and it should cheer us on. It should cause us to lift up our heads. should cause us to see our legacy, who we're connected with, that we're like them. We also, and we can take the baton from there and keep moving forward. And then as we go, 
we'll pass the baton, our witness, our testimony, we'll pass the baton on to the next generation and those who follow us. So you not only carry a legacy, you are a bringer of legacy moving forward in the race and that is an exciting thing if you're thinking about it. The problem is we're not always thinking about that. We don't always think about the fact that we're in a race. I remember I worked with somebody that, uh, you know, he knew I had become a Christian. This is when I just became a Christian. I was still working in an office in northern Kentucky. And uh, this guy would talk about all his partying he did the night before, and he'd come in hungover and things like that. And I would try to share with him about the Lord and stuff. And then one day he said to me, hey, Rick, don't worry about me. You know, I, when I was six years old, I went down to the altar and I prayed a prayer to receive Christ. And so I'm okay. And I was like, oh, you know what? I didn't know what to answer at that point, and I don't know if, if I'd know ex exactly what to answer at this point. I'd want to be led by the Spirit to answer that one. But I know what I believe theologically, what the Scripture says. The Scripture, for one thing, doesn't say that you're saved by praying a prayer. Uh-oh. How many tracts have you read? Pray this prayer, and what's it say the very next thing? Congratulations, you're saved. Welcome to the family. God. You have eternal life. Well, there is no sinner's prayer in the Bible. There's no sinner's prayer. You don't get saved just by signing your name on a contract. I mean, you could possibly be saved by praying the prayer, but what the prayer does, it doesn't finish the race. It puts you in to the race. You've got a race before you, and most people are not thinking about that. They're thinking, well, I prayed the prayer, and I'm okay. Don't worry about me, and uh, thank God he, he doesn't look at all my... No, we are set on a journey, we are set on a pilgrimage, and we need to see ourselves in a race. And this race is a serious race, and we have to run with endurance. Otherwise, you know, otherwise, what would all the purpose be of all the writings of Scripture that's trying to get us to encourage us to persevere, keep going? I'm not saying that you can lose your salvation if you pray to prayer. That's not it at all. So don't misunderstand anything like that. We are always safe and secure in Christ. The question is, are we in the race? And that's the question for all of us. And if you're in the race, you want to run the race with endurance. And so you want to lay aside every weight. Who wants to run a race with weight? In fact, who wants to be just living every day with a weight on them? What are the weights that you carry? There's so much weight that we carry. There are burdens that we carry. There's guilt there's, there's anxiety, there's depression, there's, there's struggles. And look at the heart of the Lord through the inspiration of Scripture and through the Apostle encouraging us. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Sin will ensnare us, will trap us. They go together, laying aside every weight. What's bogging you down? What's keeping you from moving forward? Do you like holding on to that? Why are you holding on to it? Well, some of us didn't know we had a choice. An athlete who is in a race decides to lay aside the weights. He's going to put on, he or she's going to put on the clothing that's the lightest. They're not going to carry the, the sandbag weights that they used in training. They're going to shed that stuff so they can be free and that they can fly. And that's what the Lord's heart for us is in the Christian race. This is not a struggle. This is not a sprint. It's, it's running with endurance means we're in a marathon, but we can run freely, laying aside the weights. And a lot of people just feel like, 
I'm bogged down. This is the way I am. This is the way I've been for years, and I don't know how I'll ever get past it. And I, I'll, they'll pray for deliverance. They'll ask someone to lay hands on, pray that I don't have this struggle anymore, and things like that. When they have a choice, they can say, hey, I'm in a race, and it's fueled by God's grace. I have a choice. I'm going to lay aside. Is it hard to lay something aside? I got to take this. I got to lay this aside. Put it over here. That, that wasn't too difficult. I mean, the, it says lay aside. It doesn't say gather up all your strength and get some other help and try to pull this thing up and uproot it and things. And it just says lay aside. It means you make a choice. And what are you laying aside? Anything, any thought, emotion, feeling, behavior that is not consistent with who you are in Christ, the truth that has set you free, the resurrected living God who's inside of us, in our spirit, anything that doesn't mesh with that, let's lay it aside. Let's lay it aside. You know, there, there are truths that set us free, and we preach and say, take that truth, take that promise. That's one part of it. But the other part is sometimes your heart is still holding on to a weight. Your heart is, you, you understand that God answers prayer, right? Everyone will agree with that. There's a promise that God will answer our prayers. But there might be a weight in your heart that says, but not for me. He might answer prayers for others, but I don't deserve it. Or this promise, it works for them, but not for me. What is, what is your heart doing in your faith walk, in the race of faith? The first step is recognizing my heart's not there. I, I know the truth. I believe the truth, but my heart's not there. What do you do? Well, this is when you choose to lay aside that you recognize this isn't in agreement with what God says about me, with what he says about himself and what, what he's promised, and I need to speak to my heart again. Hebrews for the heart. Hebrews addresses the heart issues, and we need to look at what's, what our hearts are believing. You know, the scripture says, he who confesses that Jesus is Lord and believes in his heart that Christ rose from the dead. Not believes in your mind, believes in your heart. So we lay aside that weight. We say, something's not there in my heart and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lay that aside. I'm going to put it down because it's not consistent with the truth. I'm going to believe the truth. And that's a liberating truth. Um, and then, of course, the sin. We should all know that sin is going to keep us from moving forward. And the result of sin is that it ensnares us. It can trap us. And you'll be forgiven for sin, but you might have to go through some ensnarement of the consequences for a long time. You don't want that. That keeps you from moving forward. God has a prize before us, and it's not just when we get to heaven, but it's looking unto Jesus as we see, see in the next verse we don't want to be ensnared. The Lord doesn't want us to be ensnared. The Lord doesn't want us to be weighed down with heavy weight. Isn't that good? He is, he is a God that wants freedom for the captives. He wants us to be walking in strength and joy, peace and victory. And so many people don't experience that because they're not looking for that. They don't expect that it's for them. Philippians 3, 13 to 14 says... Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He had a goal. He had a prize. 
we have a goal and a prize, and if anything is hindering that, we can speak to that mountain and say, out of the way, because we also are like those great Hebrews Hall of Famers, and we have a better before us. So, verse 2 will give us some keys to doing this and enduring, moving forward in the race free. Verse 2 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. How do you win a race? You look, you look, you, you have the end in sight. You're going, if you're in a race, you're look. imagine an athlete who's just looking at the stands while they're running and, and pointing to the sights and things like this, and then they trip, or, and they're looking everywhere, but at the right point ahead. We have to be looking at the right point ahead if we want to get there and win. And it says you do this by looking unto Jesus this doesn't mean that you imagine a picture in your mind or you look at a picture of Jesus or something like that. It's talking about the spiritual eyes of your heart. You're directing your heart. Another uh, translation of this scripture says, fixing your eyes on Jesus. How many of you know, turn your eyes upon Jesus? And I won't sing because that's not my calling. Um, but turn your eyes on Jesus. When you turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And it's hard to do that. I'm not talking about having a mental picture of Jesus. I'm talking about getting quiet with your heart, directing it in his direction, looking unto him. And if you're looking unto Jesus... That means you're not looking so much at the circumstances or the trial or the, the temptation or the lesser things. You're looking to the one who's going to do the work, who's going to give you the strength to, to carry on, who's going to bring you into the place of salvation, bring you into the place of healing. Remember the story in Numbers 21 when the Israelites were bit by serpents. And Moses was instructed to lift up a serpent on a pole, a bronze serpent on a pole. And the Israelites were instructed to look at that bronze serpent and they would be healed. They had to look. And then later in the book of John, Jesus said that he's going to be lifted up just like that serpent that Moses lifted up. What happened when they looked to that serpent? They were healed. They weren't... Now, the temptation would be looking at the serpents around us and looking at the bites they're giving us and saying, oh man, how horrible, what, what am I going to do next? But if they looked at the serpent, everything would be okay. And that's a, that's a lesson for us. We need to be looking at Jesus to get through in these final days because there's going to be so much snake biting upon us that we're going to have to be miraculous walkers in the spiritual realm the race of faith that we can get forward and get past it all. I mean, every day presents something. And if you're not looking at Jesus, that's when you're looking to the wrong thing. You might be looking to yourself. It says that he is the author and finisher of our faith. So when you first came to him and gave your life to him, he became the author of your, he gave himself to working in your life. 
And so he started it and he's going to continue it. And as you look to him, you know, you're, that's a way of laying aside a weight. You're not looking to the weight that's bogging you down. You're looking to him and he's drawing you. And he's the one that's effective. I mentioned the healing that was in Numbers 21. I like the story of Charles Spurgeon. You all know he's the prince of preachers in our uh, tradition and history. And uh, his testimony was that he was struggling and miserable, full of anguish over his life and his sin. And he went into a Methodist church one rainy night. And the preacher was preaching on Isaiah 45.22. I think it was Isaiah 45.22, yeah. And uh, that verse says, Look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be ye saved. The Lord was saying, Look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be ye saved. And Spurgeon was just a stranger sitting in the back pew. And the preacher called him out and said, You, young man back there, you need to look unto Jesus. You're going to be miserable until you look. Look, young man, look. And Spurgeon said, I did look, and everything changed at that point. My burdens came off of me. I, all the stress and weight were lifted. You know, some of you are familiar with Pilgrim's Progress. When he came up to that cross and he carried that huge backpack the whole time, it dropped off and he was free. This is what I'm saying the Lord wants for us. He doesn't want us bogged down. He wants us looking to him and he will finish the job. Problem is, we try to finish it ourselves. We, we, we remember that he started it with us, but then when things happen, we try to go and fix things, and what, what am I going to do? We forget that he's doing the workmanship. We are his workmanship, and he's the finisher. If we just look to him, that's when he can do his magic touch. And that is a key help in learning how to endure. And there's two other keys here in this same passage. He said that for the joy who, that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of God. So one of the ways to endure is for the joy that's set before you. What was the joy set before Jesus as he endured the cross? Most of us have been taught, and I don't believe it's wrong, uh, that it was you and me. He saw the fruits of what he was going to pay the price for, what he was going to suffer for. He saw us down the vision of eternity. He saw all who would come to faith in him, and he said, they're worth it. I'm going for it. I want this to happen. And that's a special thing. I like that, that teaching. But I, I'm, I'm going to suggest that maybe there's something else here, that the joy that was set before him was simply to do the will of the Father, in John chapter 4, verse 32, when the disciples came, saw him talking to the woman at the well, they said, you, you know, eat something, don't you, aren't you hungry? And he said, I have bread to eat of which you do not know. We have bread to eat which, which the world does not know. There is something about doing the will of God. When you're living in sync with God's will, when you're walking in his steps, it's, it's food that the world knows nothing about. And that gives, us, that gives us something to endure with. We see that there's a joy set before us. And so uh, the Hebrews were struggling because they were dealing with opposition. And, the, and the, uh, uh, the author is saying, hey, look, put the joy set before you. Just look, consider Jesus looking unto just Jesus. He went through worse. We're going to see that in the next verse. But if you have the reward, if you have the prize, that is a motivator. That is a help that pushes you 
That pushes you through the other things. And that brings to the second key of endurance in this passage here. The first is joy set before you. You have the reward. You see the reward. His reward was that he would sit down at the right hand of the throne of God. There was ultimate exaltation, glory, and reward. He is above all, and everything he did put him in a position that we can join him in. We can also be seated at that place. And that's something to look at. Put that before you, and there's endurance. There's strength to endure. But the second part to that is that he endured the cross despising the shame. Despising the shame is a real powerful way to endure. What does it mean to despise the shame? It means he didn't let anything about the cross deter him. The uh, way you could define it is as he disesteemed the shame. He disesteemed. What do I mean by that? He didn't esteem these things as important or as, as powerful as they look or as value. You know, we, we esteem things. We esteem something as valuable or we disesteem something and say, that's nothing to me. There's no value in that. And on the converse side, the shame, the ugliness, the things that are coming after us, we can, we can esteem those things, not saying we like them or value them, but we esteem them by making them huge and saying, oh, woe is me, and they have power over me, and, and what am I going to do? We have to learn to despise that, disesteem that stuff and say, what is that? What is that small thing? That thing is trying to make itself a mountain. It's a molehill. What is that thing in the light of eternity? How is that going to change anything with my inheritance? It's not. I don't have any esteem for that. I'm not going to let that have power over my life. I disesteem it. I despise that thing. I move forward for what's of value and the, the reward that's before me. Amen or oh me. You can disesteem temptations. Come on and sin, it's saying. Come on and sin. What is that? I don't have anything to do with that. I have something greater, something that's going to fulfill me much more if I can get past this part of the race, this hurdle I have to jump. Same thing with trials. This trial's going to be the death of me. It's going to take me out. Is anything ever... No, you disesteem it. You say, this is, this is just a, a blip on the thing and I'm moving forward. This is not going to have power over me in the name of Jesus. Because I'm looking unto him. And as he healed those Israelites from their snake bites, he's going to heal me from this situation. He's going to deliver me just like he delivered Spurgeon from his misery. And he still does that. He's still at the throne of God. He's still interceding for us. And we ourselves, if we can see ourselves there, we can direct our hearts to be there, right there with him, seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and say, what is this lower stuff that's trying to get me dragged down, this weight that's trying to bog me and keep me from moving forward. I'm laying it aside. And it's not that hard when you get into that position at the right hand of the throne of God. It's not that hard when you're in that position. But it, when you're not looking to Jesus and you're just trying to do it in your strength, even though you're using the right scriptures and the promises, things, that's when it's a little more difficult. So we go forward in the race. We're trying to get in position where we have this help from on high. And this should encourage us to endure. Now we have even more to help us endure in verse 3 and 4. Verse 3 and 4 says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. 
You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Now, what this is talking about, it's not talking about you striving against sin and fighting, you know, how am I ever going to defeat this sin? This is talking about the hostility that was coming against them. This is talking about the hostility that caused bloodshed for Jesus. He, he, had, he had opposition. It says, consider him who endured the hostility of sinners. It wasn't just at the cross at the end of his life. It was throughout his life that he was enduring against hostility from sinners who were attacking him and maligning his name and, and, uh, and not understanding him and causing grief and trouble until finally up to the cross he's betrayed and he's, he ends up being crucified. It's saying he was striving against sin much worse than you or I have strived. We have not yet resisted to bloodshed. And if you're discouraged, if you're weary, here is the... The key here is that you consider him. He went through so much more for us. Can we go for so much more for him? And I just said that, and some of you could start feeling shame and guilt. Well, he did it for me. Can I not do it for him? And that's a noble thought, but that doesn't move you. You have to take that from being a legalistic thought and, and really letting it sink into your heart first. What did he do for me? How does that affect me? Let it warm your heart, and when it warms your heart, and then you have a desire in your heart, well, I want to do something back for him. I'm not talking about having a legalistic shame complex. I'm saying consider, and when they talk about considering, we're saying consider to the point that it gets into your heart. And anything that we're going through, any opposition we're going through, he's already gone through much worse. And we have a hard time with opposition. We need to learn to get in this place with with God and His grace in this time, because I do believe opposition is coming down the road in these times. And we've been a very privileged generation for the most part. We haven't had much troubles up until recently. We had the COVID thing before we had the, the uh, 911, September 11th stuff. But, you know, previous generations, and I'm thinking of people who stormed the beach at Normandy. They went all out, get, went all in, gave of themselves. And here we are. We've had it so good that so many people in this generation today are whining on the Internet and, and can't handle even a little disagreement. I remember seeing a post, uh, some political post on Facebook, I guess, and, and I disagreed with this post so bad, but I've learned not to respond to those things. It's not really a point, but I read what some of the comments are. And, you know, usually the comments are reactionary and they'll be just divisive and nobody will hear what the other's saying. But I read this post and I hated what that guy said. And I read a comment and this commenter said everything that I would have desired to have said. But he said it in such a way that I thought was so intelligent, so calm and collected. And it was just good, good, uh, good dialogue answering back and forth to the issue. I thought he said it the way it needed to be said. And when I checked back, the original guy who posted this said, why did you bring such a hateful tone? <laughs> I was like, I did. there was no hateful tone in that whatsoever. I'm like, well, are you that sensitive that you can't handle any little disagreement or opposing idea and consider it? Anyway, that's getting off a little. But it's to the point is that we have to be stronger than that. We have to consider that opposition will come, but it doesn't have to move us or rail us 
rail us, uh, rile us up. It doesn't have to rankle us if we can be calm and consider that Jesus went calmly before those who were hostile to him. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And we're to be like lambs, but we're also to be wise as serpents. We have to watch when we say and watch what we say. But what do we consider when we become disappointed or discouraged or when there's some opposing idea? What do we consider? Is it really worth it? To, is, <coughs> excuse me. Is it really worth it to go on a rampage against the other person? No. Um, Galatians 6.9 talks about this endurance. Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Again, this emphasizes the heart part. The heart is what we want to keep strong. And if you just stay in the race, you will reap a harvest. This also emphasizes the the reward, the joy set before you. You all have a harvest coming. And it's, I believe it's multiple harvests. It's not just end time harvest. It's harvest through whatever you're going through right now. If you can get through this portion of your race, obedient to God and believing that he's for you, not against you, and that he's going to see you through, you're going to reap a harvest in this situation as well. You're going to reap a harvest one way or another. If it doesn't happen in the situation at hand, it's going to happen in your heart because you were obedient and the Lord's doing something in you. And this is where we get to the idea of discipline, which is brought up in these next few verses. And we close on this section here. But this is important. Verse 5 through 11. This is turning it not just to uh, keys to endurance, but it's not just disesteeming the problems and trials, but it's turning the problems and trials into a plus, saying not just do I disesteem this power over me, but I'm going to turn it around and even see it, that God's going to use it for good and do something to produce something in me. So it says, and you have forgotten, don't forget this, the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. For furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Do you see the reward here, what's set before you? There is a peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained. There's the athlete again who's in training, that we're in a race and we want to run with a peaceable fruit. This marathon requires the endurance of peace to keep us going, not the struggling and gasping for breath and I'm not going to make... You want the peace of righteousness. And no chastening seems pleasant at the time. Nobody likes that. But now, 
here is what I want to say about this. This passage is the only passage uh, that I think is, is in the New Testament where people can take this and come to this. It's not the only passage, but it, it's the main passage that someone would say, God is doing something to me and it's because I've, I've been bad or I'm being punished. It's the chastening of the Lord. He's scourging me. And, you know, I, you can just go through life with a weight believing that every misstep I make, he's sending another thing to discipline me and correct me. And that is not what this passage is implying. Although we've taken it and run with it, this is where people will talk about the sovereignty of God is putting all this on you to teach you a lesson. And that is going to slow you down if you hold that mindset. Now, how else can you hold this? Let's look at this. First of all, the chastening of the Lord is a work of love. It's the work of a heavenly father. It talks about you had fathers that did it because they loved you, and this is a father. Some people didn't have loving fathers. Some people had abusive fathers, and they didn't have chastening. They had child abuse. And nobody wants that. And so it's hard to understand. Sometimes they can carry that into their relationship with God and think that God is like that and that he's going to be doing these terrible things so that we can learn how to submit and be humble and be disciplined for our mistakes and failures and our imperfections. If that were the case, then Jesus didn't have to die for us. He took all the punishment for us for our imperfections, our mistakes, and, our, and all our missteps. All the punishment was upon him. We are not being punished. Chastening is a Greek word, paideia, that means correction, instruction, discipline in the parental sense. It does not mean punishment. Correction, instruction. Paideia is like a, a teacher, elementary school teacher who teaches children. It's a parental, loving parental work that sets us in the right way. And we ought to thank God that he loves us and he wants to love us like that. It doesn't mean judgment or punishment for your recent mess up. Now, the stumbling block here is in that passage that quotes, uh, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. In verse 6, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. This is where we could get the idea that God is scourging us. God is whipping us. That's what scourges is a whip. And that he's, he's overpowering us. What do we do with this? Do you know that this verse is a translation from the Old Testament? It's from Proverbs 3, 11 to 12. Look how Proverbs 3, 11 to 12 says it. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. Wait a second, what happened to that? Look at your verse 6 again in Hebrews. Whom the Lord scourges in those whom he receives. The actual scripture says the Lord loves, he corrects, as a father, the son in whom he delights. So why does it say scourge in the Hebrews interpretation? Good question. Thanks for asking. <laughs> because the author was, trans, was using the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. There's a Greek translation called the Septuagint, for those who are theologically in the know, which is a Greek translation of the old Hebrew scriptures. And the apostles and even Jesus quoted from the Septuagint. 
But the Septuagint wasn't necessarily an infallible translation. They had a different translation in certain things, and it was, it was uh, translated by 70 different rabbi scholars. And you never know how things can seep in, tradition can seep in, but the word for scourge can be the same Hebrew that's word for like a father. Hebrew is a funny language in which it doesn't have the vowels, it has the consonants, and depending on which vowels you put into the word, it could be a totally different word. And somehow the Septuagint decided they were going to make God one who scourges. But what is the definition of scourge? I looked up the definition of scourge in our American dictionaries, and it means suffering, a source of suffering and widespread vengeance or affliction, punishment. It, the word severe is in there. Vengeance, did I say? This is what scourge means. We have this idea of scourge, vengeance, affliction, severe suffering. And that's not the picture that God uh, presented through Jesus. Jesus did take a whip and he got angry at the unrighteousness in the temple, but he loves his children. He was always kind to the sinner. He didn't whip and scourge the one who was coming to him for help. He had dinners and ate and drank with the sinners. He didn't come whipping through their thing. He came against the religious Pharisees and the hypocrites, the ones who were trying to be all wonderful. He came with the harsh words for them. He's not beating us down with a scourge. I, I don't believe that's the proper interpretation by every other picture of God that he wants to present to us. And when we think of that that way, we can get bogged down and think that he's just me, punishing me again. We're talking about correction. And the other thing about discipline, you who are parents, how many of you enjoy disciplining your children? It's something we got to do, right? Did you ever enjoy spanking your kid? <laughs> when, when, you know, if you're a good, loving parent, I know there are evil, abusive parents that might want to take that belt and just keep going. I'm not talking to the, the, the uh, broken the uh, malwired person. I'm talking about a normal, loving parent who disciplines. Their, no loving parent wants to discipline their child. They do it because they have to, and they do it quickly because they don't want to keep doing it, and they are hoping and praying that the child learns his lesson. And that's the whole point, that the child would learn his lesson. So why is it that when we have people, Christians, who are suffering some terminal disease, and they just think God must be teaching me something, but I don't know what it is. They think that God is terminally, perpetually bringing some kind of abuse or pain upon them, but they don't understand. They haven't learned anything. I think God is more of a wise and loving father than I am, that he can get the point across quickly. How do you know if you're being disciplined by the Lord? One, it's not child abuse. He's not sending you a terminal cancer to teach you a lesson. Any loving parent who would put a terminal cancer on their child to teach them a lesson, we would question and call the social agency, wouldn't we? God is not like that. God is not sending the storms and the tragedies and taking loved ones to teach us a lesson. But he will, in his loving wisdom, sometimes let us go our way, just like a loving parent might say, okay, you made a choice, let's see how, so we can learn something. And sometimes he'll let things happen that... Maybe he could intervene, but he wants us to learn something, how to draw closer to him in that. 
but it's not a perpetual abusive situation. And the mistake that many in the church make is they think that God is doing this to teach them a lesson, and they embrace the thing, and it never ends. And they keep going through it, and, uh, well, for some reason, I got this is my lot in life. No, we're in a race. We have to keep moving forward. God wants to deliver you. Psalm 34, 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them from them all. So if you're going through something perpetually and it's not changing and you don't understand and you don't have the point, then maybe you need to reconsider what's going on. Maybe you need to take authority over the enemy. Maybe you need to, to uh, trust in the promises of God. Believe me, just turn that switch, that thermostat in your heart saying, God does love me and cares and he's not the one behind this. I'm going to trust him for good. And boom, maybe that's the end of what you're going through. I don't know, but I know that God is not a God of child abuse. He's a wise God. That said, let's finish by talking about trials. Don't waste your trials. You don't have to assign them to the Lord, but you can say the Lord can discipline me and train me in this. Isaiah 30, 15 shows Israel wasting the trial. It says, thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest you shall be saved and quietness and confidence shall be your strength. But you would not. They wouldn't look unto Jesus, so to speak. And that's when you're forfeiting where your, your rest and your strength is going to be. In Psalm 119.71, David said, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. doesn't say that God afflicted him, but he reframed it. He said, This is good because it's causing me to learn your statutes. I can talk about some very difficult times I went through this year, maybe this last week. I don't know, but they drove me to the Lord. And that's a way of making good use of your trials, your, your challenges. You can waste those, and you'll never get better. Some people think suffering is what makes a Christian better. If that were true, then the whole church would be super saints. It's not how it works. The instruction, the discipline, the chastening comes when you go back to the Lord and say, okay, Lord, what are you teaching? What can I learn from this? What scripture can help me through this? What am I? I've memorized so many scriptures through trials, because, and I, it wasn't like I have to memorize my scripture today. It's because I was taking them like a pill, the gospel pill, and I took them every day, and I, it just sank into my heart, and I know these scriptures now. That's the easy way to memorize scripture. When you need a scripture for something you're you're dealing with, there it is. That's how you can get it and you remember it because you're using it. You're not wasting this trial. Trials can be goads or prods to get you into a place where you're receiving from the Lord. And it may be you're receiving better from the Lord at that time than if that trial hadn't happened. So I'm not saying the trial's coming from God. I'm saying that God's going to work in the trial. That's where the chastening is. In fact, the whole life we're living in is kind of a disciplinary process through this race to get us in better position with him, in better communion with him, fellowship with him. And then it yields a peaceable fruit of righteousness. There are things that I've gone through in the past that drove me nuts that don't drive me nuts now because the Lord got me through them. The Lord instructed me. I know how to respond now. And it's much nicer going through life without being, uh, you know, caught off guard by these things. I, oh, yeah, this is, I disesteem them more now. It's not, you know, this was a big animal to me in the past, but now it's just a little ant, you know. This is the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Somebody asked George Mueller, how do I get more faith? He said, 
have more trial. <laughs> now, I don't, don't, don't embrace trials, but just don't waste them. Don't embrace trials, but embrace God through the trials. And know that God is not holding a scourge, a whip, a vengeance over you. God loves you, and that's the whole purpose. He allows some things because he wants to see you out of them. He wants to show his glory and his deliverance. He wants to show his fellowship with you as you go to him. You know, you don't go to him as much in prosperity. When things are going well, you're not flying to him as much. Most people aren't. And that's something we want to remember. When things are going well, be thankful in everything. Continue to go to God and uh, don't waste that either. Don't waste the prosperity. It's, it's an opportunity to be in continual thanksgiving. But this is saying that even in trials, we can be thankful because he's there and he's producing a peaceable fruit of righteousness. And that helps us get forward in the days ahead. We become stronger, just like the athlete. We become faster for the race of grace as we seek his face. And the marathon is a long one, but there are water stations along the way. You can be refreshed along the way and have greater endurance for the days ahead by understanding God's love for you, by looking unto Jesus, by disesteeming the shame and the trials, and considering you hold the baton that others made it, you can too. By his grace, by his mercy. Amen? Or oh me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, blessing us with even the opportunity to serve you, to run with you. We thank you that you carry us in many parts of this race. And we thank you, Lord, when you allow us to grow and strong and be strengthened. We thank you, Lord, that you are a wise and loving God, that you, you know how to work in our lives and that it's not bad or anything we need to fear. So I pray, Lord, for each person here that any strongholds, any weights, any sins that have hindered, maybe the wrong thoughts about you, maybe thinking that you are against them for some reason. I just pray that all those weights drop right now in Jesus' name. I pray the strongholds be cast down and we bring them to the obedience of Jesus who obeyed perfectly on our behalf that we might be counted righteous in him. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Just stay